Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack. I'm the founder and CEO of Vandenack Weaver LLC. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trust and estates, business succession and exit planning, law practice technology management and leadership, and upon occasion, well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory Housing and Business Centers, and Carson Private Client. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Ken Alter. Ken is Managing Director of Planning Alliance, a New Jersey-based risk and wealth management firm. His practice focuses on business and estate planning for owners and executives of middle market companies and ultra-affluent families. His specific areas include, but are not limited to, advanced estate planning for domestic and international families, business continuation planning, insurance and wealth management, qualified and non-qualified plan design, transaction advisory services for companies planning for eventual ownership succession. I asked Ken, I actually read an article that he authored, And it was on the intersection of two of my favorite subjects, ESOPs and estate planning, optimizing after-tax outcomes. So I asked him to share about that topic because I really liked kind of the approach where we were talking about the intersection between estate planning 
and ESOPs. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Ken. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, and thanks for having me. So can we start off with the simplest question ever for you, I hope, but not so simple for everybody else. But will you tell us what an ESOP is? Sure. So, so an ESOP stands for Employee Stock Ownership Plan. And you can think of it as a qualified plan that is permitted to own eligible employer securities. And it is the only type of qualified plan that is permitted to own stock in an S corporation. Companies set up ESOPs for a variety of reasons. Uh, One example, which is probably the most common and simple example, is to align employee incentives with company incentives by giving employees uh, stake in the game or skin in the game uh, of how the company does. But it's also a very powerful tool for business exit planning and applied correctly in the estate planning domain as well. So let's just talk about that estate planning domain for a minute. Why is it important to consider an ESOP in relation to estate planning? I think there are several uh, reasons that come to mind. Uh, I I always think of an ESOP as a uh, tool for an owner to exit a company on a tax advantageous basis. And uh, there are several ways in which an ESOP is tax advantageous. I'm sure we'll get into many of them uh, on this call, but it's often the case that generation two or generation three is not going to want to maintain ownership in a company that may be very valuable. And so generation one is going to look to do some sort of transition Uh, or conversion of the equity that's been built in the business into some sort of liquid asset. And uh, an ESOP not only represents a market internally to purchase shares from generation one so that ownership is transitioned internally and liquidity is achieved externally for the family, but under Internal Revenue Code Section 1042, it may actually represent a better potential buyer in terms of after-tax dollars than third-party buyers such as a strategic acquirer or private equity. So we we spend a lot of time in the exit planning domain uh, thinking about an ESOP as almost a tool to use to benchmark what a third-party transaction would need to be able to generate in order to make it worthwhile when you think about all of the benefits that can be achieved internally by selling to an ESOP and effectuating what's called a 1042 exchange. So let's talk about that section 1042. In the article that you wrote, you referred to ESOPs and 1042, use the phrase best of the both, both worlds. So can you elaborate on 1042 a little bit? Absolutely. So, um, If you think of a a typical sale of a business, uh, it's it's very rare uh, in the middle market space or small to middle market space that you're going to see a stock sale of a company. Typically, a buyer is going to seek to acquire the assets of the company 
and the seller is going to pick up some combination of ordinary income and or capital gains uh, on that transaction, right? There's depreciation, recapture, and other issues that can, that can come to the fore on a traditional third-party transaction. Uh, and there are a lot of tools to plan around those issues, but ultimately there's a uh, tax that, that comes due. And um, when, when you're selling a company to an ESOP, you not only have the ability to, to do a stock sale as opposed to an asset sale, because you're really in much greater control of the transaction than in a typical third party uh, situation. But under Internal Revenue Code Section 1042, you can actually defer all of the capital gain that might be due on the transaction. Uh, and you can do that so long as you have the proper upfront structuring followed by the appropriate reinvestment of whatever the sale proceeds are into something called qualified replacement property, which is a very clear definition under the Internal Revenue Code. So if you, if you think about, uh, let's just use an example, a $100 million business, and for purposes of our example, we'll assume that there's no real basis in the company that just it's been depreciated or, or whatever. Uh, if that company is a partnership, let's assume, and a third party is looking to buy it and there's no basis, your best case scenario, if you're a taxpayer in New York or New Jersey or California or one of those higher tax jurisdictions, is that you're going to pay um, you know, the surtax, long-term capital gains, and some level of state income or capital gains tax, depending upon what applies at the state level. So $100 million quickly becomes $70 million after you adjust for the embedded tax liability that's going to be realized on the transaction to a third party. If you structure the company properly to effectuate a 1042 exchange, the sale of that $100 million business to an ESOP can occur on a fully tax-deferred basis and with good estate planning, ultimately on a tax-free basis, uh, subject to certain structural considerations uh, and after-the-fact investment considerations. So um, it, it basically, what needs to be done to qualify the company to participate in a 1042 exchange is let's use our partnership example uh, initially, the company is going to need to convert uh, or recapitalize as a C-corporation, whatever the terminology is that, that you want to utilize. So let me just ask, can they do that on a tax-free basis? Uh, ge generally speaking, you can elect, the answer is generally yes. In the situations that we've done it, it's always been structured to move from partnership to C-corp without any current tax liability. Okay. So that's step uh, one is the conversion to the C Corp. And then step two? Step two is going to be the sale of the C Corporation to the employees, uh, to, to the employee stock ownership plan, to the ESOP trust uh, on a leveraged basis is typically how it's going to be done. We'll get into the leverage mechanics behind how the whole transaction gets financed. 
Um, but let's just let's just assume it was for $100 million of cash, as though the ESOP had that money, which of course it doesn't. Let's pretend it did for purposes of the 1042 example, and then we'll deal with the mechanics behind how it actually originates and gains the capital necessary to effectuate the transaction subsequently. Um, but initially, what you're going to do is you're going to um, sell the company after it becomes a C corporation to the ESOP. And what Internal Revenue Code Section 1042 says is that um, as long as the proceeds of that transaction are um, used to purchase what's called qualified replacement property, then very similar to a 1031 exchange, you're effectively able to roll your gains from the transaction into the property that you are acquiring, which is uh, qualified replacement property. And just so you know what qualified replacement property is, it's essentially any security that's issued by a domestic operating corporation that did not for the taxable year preceding the year in which the security was purchased have passive investment income in excess of 25% of its gross receipts. Uh, and the, the term operating corporation in the sense that I'm using it, in the sense that it's used in the Internal Revenue Code under 1042, is any corporation uh, where not more than 50% of its, sorry, where, where more than 50% of its assets uh, were used in the conduct of an active trader business. So, so I'm just classic- going to, Back up and ask you a question for clarification. By the way, you've been doing one of the better jobs of simplifying the ESOP transactions of anyone I've ever talked to, but I still just want to have one point that I want you to clarify. So seller owns $100 million of stock in his company. Yes. Has zero basis. So if he sold it to a third party, he's got $100 million of capital gain. Instead, he sells it to the ESOP, but what we're really doing is because that is going into qualified replacement property, is that why he's not paying gain on the $100 million? I just want to clarify why he's not paying that $100 I think you've said it. I just was ask, kind of re-asking for clarification. Yep, that's right. As long as the, um, the I won't say the proceeds of the sale, but as long as there's the purchase of $100 million of qualified replacement property, doesn't have to be using the sale proceeds. It could be using other money, right? And that's an important, very important detail, um, which we'll get into the significance of it in just a moment. Uh, As long as that purchase is made within a period beginning three months prior to the transaction and 12 months following the transaction, as long as that purchase is made, the seller is able to defer or roll the gain into the qualified replacement property and defer the transaction until there's ultimately a liquidation. Sorry, defer the gain until there's ultimately a liquidation of that qualified replacement property. Assuming that that liquidation occurs during the seller's lifetime. And it might not. And that, when we start to tie all the pieces together later in our conversation, uh, has important implications because what do we know about what happens when people pass away and they own an asset? There can be a basis adjustment at death. 
And there's ample data to support that qualified replacement property for which gain has been rolled over under 1042 is eligible for a step up in cost basis at death. So uh, what effectively happens there is you can defer the gain under 1042 and ultimately seek to eliminate the gain under 1014. And um, there are several steps that go into it, and we're going to talk through some of those in just a moment. But I want to just give examples of what qualified replacement property includes, because I think it it could be a little mystifying. Uh, you know, my in my world, uh, I'm not an attorney. I'm not a CPA, right? I'm in the wealth management and exit planning and risk management domains. So, so we sort of exist at this intersection of all these different disciplines. And this transaction, the ESOP and 1042 exchange transaction, can pull all of those disciplines into one place where everybody has something to bring to the party. But I have found that in sort of the, the tax world, what the investment structuring is behind qualified replacement property can sometimes be mystifying. So I want to take a few minutes just to demystify it, to give people examples of what does a qualified replacement property transaction look like? And is this something that's going to unnecessarily complicate a client's life? And if so, is it worth the, in our example, $30 million squeeze uh, in terms of deferral of tax? And, so, and just again, to make that clear, I want to kind of go, so you went through that step one, step two. So this is the seller who sold the C-Corp to the ESOP now has $100 million. Uh, now has a seller note for $100 million in our example. Okay. okay. Uh, but whether it's cash or a note, in the um, three months prior and 12 months following that 15-month window, the seller must acquire qualified replacement property for the entire amount sold. So it's not an installment note. The gain is going to get picked up and it's going to be deferred under 1042. Okay. And in order to defer it, you have to go out and do an acquisition of qualified replacement property. So we're going to break this into two parts, if that's okay. I'd appreciate it. One is going it. to be, what is qualified replacement property? And, and what, is it, what does a qualified replacement property transaction look like? And two, if I just sold my company to an ESOP, which had no money in it for a seller note, where am I getting the money to effectuate the purchase of that qualified replacement property? And how does this transaction really stack up to other things that might have been available to me where I might have gotten more upfront liquidity, albeit taxable? And what I would represent to you is that with proper guidance and with the right team in place, you can, you can sort of have your cake and eat it too, right? You can get the upfront liquidity necessary, not just to purchase qualified replacement property, but also to facilitate uh, other lifestyle and liquidity objectives that a client might have had uh, using the same sort of capital markets access that a private equity acquirer might have uh, utilized, right? One other distinction about an ESOP is not only can it own S-Corp stock, but it's also permitted to borrow money, which also makes it unique as, a quali as far as qualified plans go. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. Financial advice is useless without empathy. At Foster Group, we want to hear your story, your goals, your worries about the future. 
Only then can we help you feel confident about all aspects of your financial life. Come experience how it feels to be truly cared for at Foster Group. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. But what is qualified replacement property? So I'll give you two examples. So again, I just want to like tie it together. So I have my seller who sold his company to the ESOP or hers or whatever pronoun applies. But so we've sold the company to the ESOP. I have this note for $100 million and now I'm going to purchase qualified replacement property. Correct. And I just kind of was trying to clarify that it's now the seller purchasing the qualified replacement property outside the ESOP. So the ESOP owns the company stock, essentially. Correct. Right? It's leverage. That's really where the cash is going to come from. And when we're talking about, we're talking about the seller purchasing or doing an exchange, really, for this qualified replacement property. Okay, so qualified replacement property would be? So so classic example is Procter & Gamble... JP Morgan, uh, Goldman Sachs, UPS, those are all current examples of companies that whether it is common stock, preferred stock, or debt issued by those companies, bonds that are issued by those companies, they would qualify as qualified replacement property because they have sufficient nexus to the United States and a sufficient percentage of their capital is used in the conduct of an active trader business. In contrast, a company like Berkshire Hathaway, which is a conglomerate, Berkshire Hathaway really doesn't do anything, but it owns companies like Geico and it has enormous interests in Apple and Coca-Cola and other companies would not qualify as qualified replacement property, even though it's a great you know, American domestic company, it doesn't fit the definition that it would need to fit to qualify as qualified replacement property. And the key thing when you're structuring the acquisition of qualified replacement property is whatever you're buying is something you're going to have to hang on to for a while. So sometimes buying stock can be challenging because number one, you don't just have $100 million dollars to go out and buy the stock. You didn't receive $100 million on day one selling to an ESOP any more than you would have received $100 million on day one selling to private equity. Usually there's you know cash up front, there's rollover equity, there's warrants, there's other earnouts that are tied to you know most third-party type transactions that we're seeing for small and middle market companies. Uh, and in the ESOP, you're not getting all the cash up front either. We'll talk about how much cash you get up front in just a little, in just a while, just a short while, but you don't have $100 million of cash right out of the gate. So you can't go buy $100 million of stock if you don't have $100 million of cash because you just can't do it. Uh, So what we're typically seeing done is there are floating rate notes that are issued by these types of companies that uh, you can acquire and then ultimately margin. So in a, in a situation that we just uh, actually literally last week, actually, no, this week, the settlement date was on Monday of this week, we bought the final floating rate note 
for a company that was sold to an ESOP is about $150 million uh, transaction. We effectuated the 1042 exchange. We ultimately acquired the 1042 exchange qualified replacement property. And what we did was we bought $150 million of floating rate notes using 90% margin. And you would normally you hear 90% margin. Well, that's very risky. That's crazy. And it's not without, it's not a zero risk proposition. But the way these floating rate note products are designed is basically as a bespoke product, specifically issued, knowing that 1042 exchange buyers are going to be coming up at a certain volume every year. So the characteristics of these floating rate notes is they're bonds, they're debt instruments issued by these types of companies. Wait, so you've used the phrase, these type of companies. I just want you to clarify what you mean when you say that. Procter & Gamble, UPS, uh, Florida Power, um, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, UBS. Sorry, not UBS. um, uh, Who was I thinking of? Um, Wells Fargo, right? Those are all companies that very high credit quality, and they'll issue long-term floating rate notes that sometimes have maturities 50 years from now, the interest rate is usually SOFR, which is the secured overnight finance rate. Think of it as a proxy for the Fed funds rate, plus or minus 10, 20, 30 basis points. And um, they're puttable after just a few years, usually at par. So what that means basically is their interest rate floats, so they're not very interest rate sensitive from a market value standpoint, because they're always current with where rates are. And because they're puttable at par value back to these highly credit qual- high credit quality institutions, there's really not very much fluctuation in what these types of bonds are worth, but they're not callable, meaning you as the holder of the bond can decide how long you want to hold it. It's not going to fluctuate meaningfully in value. And therefore, uh, from a margin standpoint, it's a highly marginable security. And by marginable, I mean you can borrow against it. So if you think about a $100 million transaction, where you have to go buy $100 million of floating rate note or of qualified replacement property, if you buy $100 million of floating rate notes, you really only need to tie up about $10 million of equity to complete the transaction. Because you don't have to buy it for cash. You could buy it using leverage, and then you effectively have accomplished your 1042 exchange without necessarily taking all of the proceeds from the sale to the ESOP and tying them up in qualified replacement property. So So, just a quick summary to, to date, just taking it back to my like sort of simpler approach, is so now I have my seller who owned a company a month or so back. Now that same seller, the company is owned by an ESOP, and this seller has now taken the notes that he received, and what he's got are floating rate notes from high-credit quality companies such as Procter & Gamble. He's got basically no capital gain to recognize at this point because the transaction is qualified as a 1042 exchange, And if he needs the cash, he can actually take a loan against these or at some point, some of them can be sold. He would recognize some gain then. Yeah. So so the way to think about it is 
the, the let's let's take let's take one step back. So in the in the transaction, okay, with the ESOP, there's going to be it's a little funky the way it gets set up because really the the seller is lending is extending credit to the company and the company is extending credit to the ESOP to buy the shares from the seller. That's mechanically the way it works, and the reason that it works that way is that most of these transactions involve a handful of steps, right? The first is upon the sale, just prior to it, the seller is going to take a distribution of whatever their AAA balance, whatever their AAA account is in the company, um, or whatever their basis is in excess of some amount of working capital that the company is going to have to be delivered to the ESOP with its new owner, okay? The... um, then what the ESOP is going to do or what the company is going to do is initially the sale is going to be done for a seller note. Let's call it a $100 million seller note. But it's really going to be broken up into three tranches. There's going to be seller note A, seller note B, and seller note C. And seller note A, the company is going to go and try to refinance. So if you take a step back and you think about how does a private equity transaction work? Private equity is just a euphemism for leverage buyout, right? Leverage buyouts gained a bad name. So private equity, so leverage buy these LBO shops rebranded as private equity shops. Uh, same you-know-what, different pigs. Actually, same pigs and same you-know-what. Nothing changed. Just the name, right? And uh, all, that a, all that a private equity company does to go out and buy a business is it says, okay, this company is doing $10 million a year in EBITDA. Uh, it has X number of dollars of free cash flow. And if, we, if we're assuming that the company on an exit is going to be worth a certain multiple of EBITDA, and we want to target a 25% IRR, how much money can we go out and borrow based on the company's balance sheet and, and still sort of sell with whatever that target multiple is? And that's how a private equity company comes up with the value, but then it's ultimately placing a combination of senior mezzanine financing on the company it's acquiring to buy out the prior owners, right? So it's always a leverage buyout transaction. And what makes an ESOP unique is that you can almost create your own leveraged buyout, but on a very advantageous basis, because not only can you sell and effectuate a 1042 exchange, but the C corporation once it's owned inside of the ESOP, can actually elect to be taxed as an S corporation, right? Now, it's if you're an S corp before you become a C corp, and then you sell to the ESOP, you have you typically have to wait five years to convert back to being an S corp. But if you're a partnership before you become a C corp, you can convert the very next day to become an S corp after your ESOP owned. And, and now you have a tax-exempt business that is highly financeable as far as a third party is concerned, because who would you rather lend money to? A company that makes $10 million but has to send half of it to the IRS in the state of New York, or a company that makes $10 million and doesn't have to send any of it to anybody because it's a, a pass-through entity owned inside of a qualified plan that pays no tax. So, well, that company is going to be much more leverageable so lenders from JP Morgan to KeyBank to Wells Fargo to, to mezzanine lenders and, uh, and you know, private credit folks like Aries Capital came in on a, on a deal that one of my clients did. 
uh, many years ago, uh, they understand the advantages of lending to an ESOP-owned company because an ESOP-owned company is in many ways better equipped, particularly early on in, in its existence, to service debt. So what happens is once the, once the company is owned in the ESOP, we go to refinance seller note A and possibly seller note B between senior secured financing and mezzanine subordinate financing using third parties, right? Whether it's JP Morgan or some other party that's coming in to take a piece of the debt package. And then the seller, the company uses those proceeds to repay the seller what's owed. Okay. So the seller is effectively getting a lot of liquidity. So let's just pretend in our $100 million scenario that right out of the gate, we could get the seller $50 million in cash by uh, refinancing some of the seller notes using third-party lenders. Now the seller's got $50 million in cash. $10 million of that's going to need to go to purchase qualified to purchase $100 million in qualified replacement property. Okay. Not 50, 10. 10 needs to go because 90 million is going to be bought on margin. 10 million is going to be bought with cash. Now the qualified replacement property piece of this is done. And there's $40 million of other money plus another $50 million of money that's going to come in for which there's basis and no further tax that's going to be paid other than on interest on the promissory note payments that are coming in. Okay, for any seller notes that remain outstanding. So, so if you think about the transaction in a sale to a third party, we would have gone from 100 down to 70 million. In a sale to an ESOP, we're going to ultimately collect $100 million. We're taking $10 million and putting it into our qualified replacement property bucket to purchase $100 million of qualified replacement property, right? And the other 90 million, we have free and clear to go do whatever we want. It doesn't have to be qualified replacement property. It could be real estate. It could be another operating business. It could be Vegas, whatever, right? And um, that's a very powerful position for the client to be in. Now, the question, and this, I think, ties back into, Mary, your earlier question about how does this all fit in from an estate planning standpoint? Well, but so this, I want to, before you go there... Yeah. So I just I just want to do so so where I was trying to go and you did a great job of clarifying the way that breaks out so thank you so where but I was trying to get to is now as we move to that estate planning piece so what seller has on seller's balance sheet is actually ten million dollars of qualified replacement property and another ninety million it's got a hundred million that got the full hundred million which is one of the points you're making about the structure of this transaction. Yeah. So, so the way I would, I would look at it like a balance sheet. So let's pretend that the seller got a hundred million in cash just to, to make life simple. So there, there are going to be $190 million of assets and a $90 million liability. So there's a hundred million dollars of qualified replacement property. There's $90 million of other stuff. And then there's a $90 million margin loan secured only by the qualified replacement property. Got it. That helps a lot. So then let's take that concept into the estate planning in 1014. 
Perfect. So, so I think the example I provided in the article um, was of a company, and I don't remember the numbers that were in that example, but the, the numbers don't matter, um, it, the, of a company that was, you know, where the attorney um, had done great estate planning, the family had done great estate planning. This was a company that was owned uh, in a grantor trust. Generation one founded the business. Generation two is in the business, but there's ultimately going to be an exit, which is probably not while generation one uh, is around and still running the company. Generation one is actually uh, the husband and wife. They're in their 80s. And the the husband reminds me of Warren Buffett, only he's not as rich, Uh, but he's still pretty rich. (laughs) Just not Warren Buffett rich. Not many people are. Uh, Just an amazing businessman, the kind of person you don't need a contract with. You could just shake hands and know you have a deal. Um, You have a contract, but you don't need one. And um, in any event, you know, he, he's still active in the business and sharp as a pack uh, running it. But ultimately he knows there's going to be some sort of transaction. So this is a company that today is, let's say worth, half a billion dollars. Um, it's in trust. There's no estate tax due, nothing, right? He's got other assets in his estate, maybe another hundred million dollars of uh, equity on his balance sheet in his estate of securities and cash, and real estate and, and the like. But, you know, the business is still the, the, the major asset and it's inside of a trust. He is the grantor for income tax purposes, the trust is disregarded for estate and gift tax purposes. It's its own thing. And let's just assume there's no 2036 or other issues that have been, you know, that are going to creep up. This is otherwise a very good, robust estate plan. Uh, And it's a testament to all of the advisors who were involved in getting the client to this point that that is, uh, what's happened here. We have, we have an older senior generation and greater than 80% of the assets are in trust. Uh, but what we know is that there was a trade-off that even though we're going to not pay a 40% federal estate tax, one of these days, likely in the next, let's say 10 years, that business is going to be sold. And when it does get sold, the if the grantor is alive, he'll have to pay. But let's assume that it gets sold after the grantor passes away. There is going to be a large capital gains tax due, right? Let's use just for round numbers, call it a you know between the ordinary between depreciation recapture, which we'll call ordinary income, and capital gains items. Just call it a forty percent, call it a thirty percent effective rate. Okay. So it's a 30% effective rate. Um, and that means on a $500 million sale, we're staring down the barrel at $150 million of tax. Uh, and the question is, or the question that was posed is, well, if we do an ESOP and we do a 1042 exchange, it will allow the senior generation to continue running the business and overseeing it but it will create certain immense tax advantages that will ultimately inure to the benefit of the family. 
by solving this trade-off, the fact that yes, we save the estate tax, but we're never going to get a step up in cost basis on this asset. So I'll just lay out schematically uh, what we had uh, up our sleeves, so to speak. Uh, basically, the idea was the uh, S corporation in this case was going to be contributed to a single member LLC, right? That that's not a uh, it's a single member LLC is a disregarded entity, doesn't exist for income tax purposes. Now the single member LLC is going to convert the S to a C corporation, okay, or merge it into an existing C corporation, preferably. Um, I say preferable just because it could accelerate your timeline to get back to being an S corp once you're inside the uh, qualified plan. But ignore that detail for now. So now you have a, a C corporation owned by a single member LLC. The single member LLC makes a, you know, enters into negotiation, forms an ESOP trust, and enters into negotiation with the trustee to sell all of the stock in the company to the ESOP in exchange for $500 million of consideration, combination of cash upfront and seller notes. So, um, and then the single member LLC goes out and acquires qualified replacement property using $50 million of whatever it receives out of the 500 to go buy $500 million of qualified replacement property. And just pretend it received $50 million in cash and $450 million in seller notes as part of this transaction. So the single member LLC receives 50 million in cash. It receives $450 million in seller notes. And now what it's going to do is it's going to push the seller notes out of the single member LLC. And it's going to go and acquire $500 million of qualified replacement property, floating rate notes specifically, using the $50 million of equity and $450 million of margin. Once acquired, the grantor is going to substitute assets in the estate for the single member LLC, which is worth assets minus liabilities. It's worth $500 million minus the $450 million of, uh, of margin. And what it's worth is not really a gray area because these are mark-to-market securities, right? So we know what they're worth. We get a monthly account statement from uh, JP Morgan or Wells Fargo or Park Avenue Securities or wherever it is that your client is uh, doing business. So uh, now all the grantor needs to do is make a swap of $50 million of assets in the estate, like you know, marketable securities, for example, that are higher basis assets for the $50 million single member LLC. Uh, and then once the single member LLC is back in the estate, you can just you know, dissolve it basically. And now there's $500 million of floating rate notes. There's $450 million of margin. And then when the, sell, when, when the grant tour ultimately passes away, which unfortunately will happen, you get a step up in basis on that $500 million of notes and you could liquidate them to pay off the margin tax-free and you haven't increased your estate tax when IOTA. You took 50 million of equity and swapped it for 50 million of equity. And now your trust-owned assets are the $50 million of securities that were swapped in plus the $450 million remaining seller note, 
which as it's going to get paid down is all basis because the gains were rolled into the qualified replacement property that ultimately got stepped up under 1014. Um, and so that's a lot. So I'll, I guess, Mary, I'll, I'll pause for any questions. I, think yeah, and these. I was going to say that is a lot, and I'm actually running a little over time, but it's a complex transaction. And when we release this episode, it'll be posted on our website and various other sites, most anywhere you can get the podcast. We're going to like include assuming it's okay with you, a link to the article, because I think the sure. article does a great job of explaining it. But I'm going to just ask you for any last thoughts on this beyond that, because I know this is, we could easily have split this into three or four episodes. So trying to ask you to go through all that in one is a lot. And so we'll try and provide the listeners with as much uh, supporting data as we can. But I think your article does an amazing job of laying this out. Yeah, and then I, and I'm always happy as we as we spoke about previously to if we need to break it up and sort of you know go into more detail, we could certainly do that in the future. But no, I, I think as a, as a last thought, or as I'll say, as a as a final thought for purposes of today, won't be my last thought of the day. This is it is a complex area. It's multidisciplinary, right? You need to have good background in tax, good background in law good background in investment banking, good background in investment management in a very niche area. There are so many different disciplines that come into play, but for the right client, this could be an immensely valuable transaction, not just for estate planning reasons, but whatever the benefits are, are compounded with good estate planning. Um, And that would be my thought. And, and the reason, and I really appreciate you doing this, because part of the reason I think there's some of us who are, well, I'm actually familiar with ESOPs. I'm blessed to have a partner who can talk ESOPs and sleep the way you can. So, but I still hadn't actually quite thought through everything until I saw your article. And I was like, ah, oh, a lot of people should really think through. I love these sort of combination strategies. And so if you just talk to somebody who does business ESOPs, and does business access with ESOPs and doesn't think through that estate planning transaction for you, you can miss kind of those double benefits. So again, when I read your article, I really liked that and just wanted to have this out there. So some who might not put together those two concepts for the right client might be thinking about it. And so hopefully we'll follow up and talk some more on some of the ideas that you have. You have several other things that we've chatted about that I really love the way that you approach intersections of business exits and estate planning. I think it's a huge way to make a difference for business owners. But as we reach the end of today's episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory, and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you you may have.
a Huda Media Production.